Science fiction meets reality. Each week, we'll bring you a sensational sci-fi invention and showcase the number one nerds making it come true. Coming up in this week's show. A first human growing in a fully artificial womb could be just 10 years away. This is a completely artificial uterus. Baby Salvador growing inside his dead mother's womb for 56 days. And now, your host, Marcus Martin. How's it going, everyone? You're listening to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. In this series, we'll be looking at some of the most iconic inventions from the world of sci-fi and meeting the incredible minds making them happen. I'm Marcus Martin, science fiction writer and author of the number one best-selling series, Convulsive. Joining me this week, as ever, are two fantastic guests and fellow nerds teleporting in from a laboratory in Cambridge. We've got the brilliant Dr. Hannah Copley. Hannah, it's great to have you here. And you're soon to be Dr. Dr. Copley. Is that right? Oh, fingers crossed. I got my medical degree a few years ago uh, and I'm now working on a PhD in uh, kidney transplant immunology as well as doing my surgical training. So yeah, hopefully Dr. Dr. soon. That's pretty badass. Huge props for that. Joining us live from London town, we have ethical entrepreneur, journalist and fellow podcaster, Sally Patterson. Sally, do you have a time turner? Because, I mean, how the heck do you manage all of that on top of doing a full-time master's in gender studies? Well, I'm actually sitting here feeling incredibly inadequate compared to Hannah. Um, and I'm wondering if I can maybe borrow one of her doctors just for the purpose <laughs> of the podcast, because all of her work makes mine sound very, very tame. But yeah, I'd love to be busy and I'm really excited to be here. Well, it's fantastic to have you here. Thank you both so much for joining. Um, I recommend anyone listening definitely check out Sally's website. It's closet-19.sharetribe.com. You can declutter or refresh your wardrobe and 100% of profits go to supporting the NHS. This week's topic is, of course, artificial wombs. We are looking at one of sci-fi's most enduring ideas, how to grow humans outside the body. You've met our brilliant co-pilots for this week. Let's get in among it. So a massive thank you to both for coming to the show this week. It's been brilliant. Oh, no, wait. Hey, I've just started reading the outro. Ah, spoilers. <laughs> I think my tally, I'm toggling between documents as well. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's, that's so embarrassing. Up. They know I'm going to say thank you later. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it's a short episode thank you guys for coming on that's it that's a wrap <laughs> okay to kick us off let's have a little bit of a, a sort of an orientation let's ground ourselves in the world of sci-fi dr dr hannah can you tell us what is your favorite example of ectogenesis growing a human outside of the body in an artificial womb what's your favorite example from sci-fi um so my favorite example is from the matrix Partway through we see the protagonist neo waking up in what is actually the real world and he swims in a kind of amniotic like fluid and he's connected with a number of tubes that permit all his bodily functions to have developed all the way from fetalhood to adulthood before he somehow breaks out of the amniotic fluid sac and gazes all the other humans still still in their uh, incubators. When you hear it described like that, it really reminds you the Matrix is not a rom-com. It is gnarly. Sally, what is your favourite example of ectogenesis in sci-fi? The classic 1932 story, Brave New World, where there are these hatcheries which are where they grow 
babies as human beings no longer produce live offspring. And there are these fetuses which are grown in these kind of tube and there are five different casts of babies and they all go through slightly different conditioning in these factories in order to make them ideal for the caste or the, the class that they're going into. We're no longer individuals who make our own choices. We are just grown in this bat of test tube babies and sent off to do our, to live our predetermined lives. Uh, I'm going to give you my two favourite examples. I couldn't pick between these ones because they're, they're both kind of cool in different ways. In Star Wars Episode 2, you do see the Stormtrooper clone army being reared on that planet Kamino. And in that scene, a young Obi-Wan is, is walking around inspecting the, the army. You see sort of all of these thousands of uh, fetuses in glass jars suspended in some sort of liquid and just just casually being being reared and then they do a lovely montage kind of succession of about two minutes they show you the entire livelihood of that child in one huge factory from being a little jar thing to uh, to being sort of fully developed which is actually very similar to the hatchley hatcheries in, in brave new world but the other example i love which is more recent is i am mother which is a film that hit netflix in 2019 i think where a robot is trying to repopulate earth using a bank of embryos. Now this is slightly weird because all the embryos are semi-developed and then they're just frozen. So they, they look like they're maybe like a couple of weeks into development, maybe a little bit more than that because you can see that they've got limbs, they've got heads and they're kind of stored in these weird little CD-ROMs with a slightly bulbous shape to them and then just inserted into a machine one at a time and it's like, cool, grow. Kick us off, Hannah. You've got a great anecdote for us, which is an interesting insight into the world of birthing, shall we say. This one featured a very unfortunate lady called Erica Negrelli, who was a 32-year-old teacher who'd collapsed three weeks before she was due to give birth. So she was in the school teaching at the time and her colleagues performed cardiopulmonary resuscitation on her. And she was transferred to hospital and confirmed that she didn't have a pulse. The doctors at the time performed an emergency caesarean section and her daughter Elena was born. Resuscitation on Erica was ongoing and against the odds, this is really unusual, um, her heart restarted. She then remained in a five day long medically induced coma and was diagnosed with the heart condition. So this is kind of really unusual because um, the baby Elena was born from a mother whose heart was not beating on it by itself. Whoa, that is absolutely crazy. Bloody hell. I don't think I've ever heard a birth story that hasn't had an element of horror to it, but something like that really <laughs> just makes you think. So I think we've established that pregnancy is dangerous from that insane story of a baby being born from a mother who was technically without a pulse. Based on that context, Hannah, could you just give us a quick summary as to why artificial wombs are important, not just in sci-fi, but actually in real life? There's a real massive problem at the moment that 15 million babies are born prematurely each year and half of them don't go on to survive. And being born prematurely is the leading cause of death of newborn babies on a worldwide level. And the less time that they spend in the uterus, the lower their chance of survival. Babies born at 22 weeks have only a 10% chance of survival, according to the charity Tommies. And many of them have long-term impairments. It has to be said that neonatal intensive care is a massive success story of our age. And there's been a massive improvement in the ability to allow babies of lower gestational age to survive. But there are very high rates of major complications. At certain ages, they can end up with something like a 7 to 90% chance of a major complication. Things like cerebral palsy, blindness or mental impairments. So the proposed major benefit for using an artificial womb with research that stands at the moment would be to try and reduce the chance of death and the chance of disability from babies that are born prematurely. 
Sally, what's your take on the notion of artificial wombs? This has been a hotly debated topic within feminism, gender studies, philosophy for however many years. I don't know if you've heard of someone called Shulamit Firestone, but she was potentially one of the first radical feminists to speak about the idea of reproduction in alternative ways. And this was way back in the 60s and 70s. She wrote a book called The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution, where she basically described the sex class of women as only being able to be fully emancipated when they are able to sort of get rid of the whole biology that comes with reproduction. She saw childbirth as barbaric and as kind of the core of all inequality and basically argued for a way in which reproduction could be done completely outside of women's bodies. But <laughs> then there are lots of other feminists who actually argue that it's not necessarily about giving birth and the baby being held in the mother's stomach, which is the, the reason that women are oppressed as a class, but it's actually their upbringing. It's, you know, after the birth, it's the fact that because of patriarchal standards, it's women who are still the ones who have to be mothers and they have to be the caregivers and the child rearers. And that's the problem, not necessarily the biology. And actually would removing women from reproduction actually take away a huge part of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a mother um, and something that is so important and so integral to billions of, of women. But I think the whole notion of being able to remove the biology or like the biological element of childbirth and of reproduction from the woman's body is incredibly interesting. What an erudite summary. Sally, <laughs> could you build on that fantastic foundation? Could you kick us off with a quick timeline of the artificial womb? Sure. So in 1954, there was the first uh, patent filed for a artificial womb of, of some sort by Emmanuel Greenberg in the US. And his prototype was that a fetus goes into a tank filled with amniotic fluid, which is serviced by a machine connected to the umbilical cord, which pumps blood, as well as acting as an artificial mother's kidney and providing warm water. Hannah, this is a really basic question, but what actually is amniotic fluid made of? Amniotic fluid is the fluid that surrounds the fetus. And um, for the first half of pregnancy, it's the same as the part of the blood that contains no cells. That's called the plasma. And then for the second part of pregnancy, it takes on a consistency more like urine as the fetal kidneys start developing uh, and the fetus drinks and then urinates the fluid as the, the organ develops to maturity. Mm, tasty stuff. And what does it do? Why is it so important for the fetus? It's predominantly protective, so it cushions the fetus from any injury and also prevents the umbilical cord from being compressed. It also allows the fetus to move and grow and has a number of other properties to stop bacteria growing and contains nutrients and growth factors that facilitate fetal growth. So we'll hear later about artificial wombs which have been um, used to gestate lambs. Um, in that scenario, they synthesized an amniotic fluid using a balanced salt solution that was sterile. For anyone listening at home who isn't familiar with the word gestate, don't worry, uh, Hannah's going to use it a lot. I'm just going to say grow. They basically mean the same thing. Uh, it's kind of like when a baby's in the womb, that's gestation. Or when a lamb's growing in a womb, that's gestation. Um, when it's out running in the field with its other lambs, that is not gestation. That's just a lamb playing. <laughs> So there we go. I'm glad we're all clear on that. That's, uh, that's emotional. Alrighty, that's so, emotional gestation. 
<laughs> yeah, you're right. That, that is indeed emotional gestation. That is a lamb doing what it does best, which is frolic. Moving on with our artificial timeline. So we've gone from Emmanuel M. Greenberg filing the first patent in 1954. That never got made because everyone was like, well, we've got incubators. They're kind of fine. We're okay with your cranky, kooky little tank for babies. Thank you very much. But in 1996, the university in Tokyo, Juntendo University in Tokyo, no less, they had a crack at it and they developed an extra uterine fetal incubation device. And their aim was to develop immature newborns, so premature babies. It wasn't intended as a full uterus replacement. They took 14 premature goat fetuses, stuck them in this fake womb, this tank they'd created around three quarters of the way through a normal goat pregnancy or gestation, if you had them. They managed to keep them alive for 17 days. And then one was birthed successfully at the end. But I'll be honest, it wasn't a great time for that particular plucky little survivor because it couldn't breathe or stand unaided after a month, which I think is generally not regarded as the biggest success when you're trying to grow sheep or goats. So for this reason, they didn't pursue it to human trials. But one interesting change on the 54 design is that this one featured a rubber bath filled with this amniotic fluid, and that kept the goat protected from the air, which is kind of how we, we diverge from uh, between wombs and incubators. But this bath was surrounded by another circulating channel of warm water, which kept it at a very nice, stable 39.5 degrees, which is around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is similar to what it would experience in the mother's womb. So there you go. Well, in the mother's goatee womb, not, not in your mum's womb, there'll be very different environments. <laughs> Hannah, could you tell us where we're headed? So the really exciting breakthrough was in 2017 when in the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, they conducted a study with something that they called the biobag design, which allowed lambs to continue to develop for up to 28 days in a bag connected to a circuit. Just to be clear, we're not talking like a bag for life that you get from your grocers. So it's like a, a clear bag filled with um, a fluid like amniotic fluid. And they reckon that the technology they've got could be applied to premature newborns with a low chance of survival um, within a few years. Cool. And who is following hot on their heels? There's another group of researchers who are also working on an external womb. They were reporting widely about it in October 2019 and think that a first human grown in a fully artificial womb could be just 10 years away. Whoa. Okay, that's getting within touching distance. Growing a, a human outside of a human body within 10 years. This is starting to feel distinctly like sci-fi reality, which ties in nicely to this insane bit of research which was done in 2013 in Cambridge and concurrently in New York, which has huge implications for the development of artificial wombs. And it does suggest that the technology really is within reach. So find out how all of those projects got on later. Remember, we will always post links to everything we discuss <laughs> and some cool images that show you the devices we'll talk about on the Facebook page. So moving on to the development of artificial wombs in a broader context, Hannah, can you just give us a quick outline of how we've made advances in birthing history? Because they're kind of essential to understand before we try and, you know, develop the womb in isolation. Yeah, so this, this last century has been kind of really amazing for the birthing advances we've uh, had as a society. The major breakthrough in fertilisation technology is IVF, which most people have probably heard of, which stands for in vitro fertilisation. And actually, as early as 1944, Miriam uh, Mencken fertilised some human eggs in a dish. And that's what the in vitro part means. It means that it's happening in a dish. 
And then a couple of decades later, in 1978, Louise Brown was the first test tube baby born after IVF. And shortly after that, technology developed so that the embryo could be frozen, which is really important because it allows many embryos to be frozen at the same time um, and implanted one at a time later, which improves your chance of success. Only a few years later, the first successful child was born from surrogacy. So that meant that you could put this fertilized embryo into the uterus or the womb of another woman who wasn't the biological parents, and they're able to give birth to the child. So that, that relies on IVF. There are certain countries that allow surrogacy for money, and so there'll be kind of surrogacy hotspots. And in fact, the whole process can be monetized in societies that allow it. So for example, you could use your partner's sperm or pay for donor sperm. You could use your own eggs or pay for donor eggs, and you could carry the baby yourself or pay for a surrogate to do it. So you could end up with a baby that, that you've orchestrated that could be donor sperm, donor eggs, and a surrogate, or you could take over any of those kind of three components yourself. This is going to be a niche scenario, but we talk a lot about designer babies, but in a sense, that's already on the cards because you can just go to a catalogue, choose a sperm donor, choose an egg donor, and choose a surrogate. There's an interesting element in there as well. If you bring in the monetary element, who is it whose bodies are being used as surrogate and who is it who's able to afford to have another woman carry her child? And we are increasingly seeing that women in the global south are almost having their wombs rented and paid for for women in the west. And it's a huge kind of power disparity there. Another really interesting thing is what society may value will therefore become more valuable in a monetary sense. So I remember being in, uh, I actually can't remember if it was MIT or Harvard um, University when I was visiting as a student. And in the student newspaper, there was a large half page advertisement for donor eggs offering $40,000 as reward. And that, and that will be because of a value placed upon students who are at these institutions for some reason. That is mad. I mean, I can't imagine Varsity having a feature on that in next week's paper, can you? I think everyone would be pretty shocked if they were suddenly asking for students' eggs from Cambridge. I can also find it very hard to imagine a lot of students being able to turn that down because that's a very compelling offer to people who are yeah. heavily indebted. And is that the situation in which you want to be making decisions about parenthood, ultimately being financially leveraged? I guess another factor is that egg donation can be an extremely dangerous thing for a woman to undergo. It's very unlike sperm donation. And that's resulted in a real shortage of egg donors here in the UK because it's very unusual for someone to be willing to undergo that risk for the benefit to somebody they don't know. So we've gone from IVF, which facilitated surrogacy, which facilitated the potential that you could commission, as it were, a child from two independent donors and use a surrogate to raise them. How does that set us up for the next development? So I think the next development is really exciting, um, which is the concept of the three-parent child. Um, so in 1977, this was achieved. When an embryo is formed, it's not just DNA from the sperm, which is the chromosomes and chromosomes from the egg, but there's also additional DNA in another part of the cell called the mitochondria, which is an organelle, which is a small subpart of the egg. And some women carry mitochondrial diseases, which means that as they give their mitochondria onto all of their eggs and onto all of the children that they could bear, that they would pass it on. 
what they were able to do was replace the mitochondria in the egg from that from another person that didn't carry this mitochondrial disease. So the embryo ended up having chromosomes from two people, a biological father and mother, and also mitochondria from a third person. I find it interesting that we've had the technology on that since 1997, and yet we've been, I think, slow to catch up in practice because, as I understand it, sort of the, fir- the first uh, examples worldwide might have been might have been in Ukraine, I think, in 2017. It was around about that time. There might have been one before that, I think, 2016, but it was recent. <laughs> so that was 97. What followed? Kind of the, one of the really exciting recent developments is that of human uterine transplantation. So uterus or womb, two words for the same thing. So this happens between a donor and a recipient. They've actually been performed for a number of years, but the big breakthrough was that in 2014 in Sweden, um, the first woman gave birth to a baby after having received a uterus transplant. So to confirm, does that mean that it wasn't an egg that was donated? She literally had a whole uterus put into a body? Yeah. So in this scenario, the woman had what was called absolute uterine factor infertility. That meant that she was born without a uterus. And so she had eggs, was able to produce a fertilized embryo with her partner's sperm, but she didn't have a uterus for the embryo to develop in. So as an alternative to surrogacy, she had the uterus transplanted into her. So she has the experience of being pregnant and gestates the child herself. What was really interesting about this first few uterine transplants was that they were done following a live donor. Just to explain what that means, it means that a woman who doesn't need to undergo surgery, who has a healthy uterus, undergoes the operation purely for the reason that she can donate that uterus to someone else, which actually very commonly happens for kidney transplants as well in many countries. In 2018, the next major step was made, which was that The Lancet reported the first live birth after a deceased donor. So that would be the donor has died for other reasons and their uterus was transplanted into a recipient. And so the first birth from that was then. And then the most recent count I could find was uh, November 2019, when 20 babies have been born following uterus transplantation so the kind of success has really escalated since that first success story from 2014. It sounds like we're really very much on the cutting edge of this technology we're not talking about hundreds of babies worldwide we're still only 20 have been uh, born through this method which is that's crazy new. If the technology is there to do uterus transplants why is it not happening every day? Being able to carry your own child is very important for some women and for the women that are undergoing these uterus transplants. But it does involve major risk to that woman in that she needs to have the initial surgery to have the uterus implanted. She then needs to take immunosuppression while she hopefully falls pregnant. And then she will then have a higher risk pregnancy as a result. And then typically the uterus is removed at the time of the cesarean section when the baby is born. That allows the woman to stop taking immunosuppression and therefore reduce her risk at that point. So although for some women it may be the right thing to do, it's not a simple kind of solution. Has there been another major advance which has allowed this to become a viable method? Another major advance is knowing how we should preserve organs outside of the body. And that's allowed organ transplantation to become the globally accepted treatment for end-stage organ failure of a number of organs. And there's now successful transplant programs for kidney transplantation, liver transplantation, heart, lung, cornea, which is the surface of the eye, small bowel, so that's the gut and the pancreas. Honestly, that is just all the ingredients of haggis, isn't it? Which really makes you think twice about Burns Night. (laughs)
Organ preservation was initially via cooling, also known as hypothermia, and it used a, a solution which was the same as that found inside the cell. That meant that the cells were essentially preserved and paused their activity because the fluid inside and out the, outside the cell were the same. It's allowed organs to be preserved for long enough to do tissue matching and to transport the organ over large geographic distances. A problem remains that the organ suffers an injury called an ischemia reperfusion injury, which happens when the oxygenated blood returns to it. Okay, so that sounds terrible. The last bit, I mean, it sounds great up until then. I, I kind of, It kind of explains why you always see in hospital dramas the medical team are arriving and they've run out of the van into the hospital with what essentially looks like a keep cool picnic box but it's presumably not stashed with sunny delights and calippos but actually has someone's ice packed liver i mean both both are upset when they when they melt <laughs> yeah exactly you know the consequences of handing over a uh, melted calippo are equally dire for someone uh, who receives a soggy liver What a fun word. I mean, just don't yell it at a bar mitzvah, unless Rick Sanchez is the rabbi. Am I right, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> hey, you know who could use a few schmeckles? Your favorite sci-fi podcast. This show takes a lot of hard work to research and produce, and it's entirely self-funded. In fact, future episodes won't be possible without the support of listeners like you. So please spread the love and head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. Any schmeckles you can share will go towards creating more awesome sci-fi content. So that's makeitsoon.com slash donate. Thanks for your support, you legend. Now let's get back to the episode. Schmeckles! So, so, Hannah, how are we getting around the, uh, you mentioned this, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try and pr- pronounce that correctly, ischemia reperfusion injury. H- how are we getting around that? Um, so there's l- lots of avenues of research to try and reduce that or reduce the risk to the organ, particularly malfunctioning. That's much more of a problem if you're putting in an organ that doesn't have a replacement that we can do via a circuit. So, for example, if a kidney, when it's transplanted, doesn't work straight away, we have a kidney dialysis machine that can replace its function. If a liver transplant doesn't work straight away, we don't have a replacement machine for that at the moment. So recent advances are focusing on using machines to perfuse organs outside the body, which has the potential advantage to recondition the organs, to try and reduce or remove that injury that happens when blood is returned, and even to deliver alternative treatments. And one form of this is called normothermic machine perfusion, which allows a period of time to go by while the organ is being perfused with human blood. So it can be, as I say, assessed for whether it's safe to transplant it or recondition it. For anyone who's listening at home and is playing the uh, drink every time Hannah says perfuse uh, game, don't do it if you've just had a liver transplant. Hannah, can you tell us what perfuse actually means? Does it just mean replace, replace an organ? Yeah, so the the perfusion just means that that, that there is a fluid or human blood flowing into the organ. So a static organ preservation would mean that, that nothing is flowing through it. So it would have ice cold preservation solution typically. If it's being perfused, it means that there is a machine pumping around, kind of mimicking what's happening in, in a body situation. Ah, okay. So it's the fancy version of preservation. It's like uh, the difference between Twining's tea regular and the Twining's infusions, which is the fancy tea. This is like that for organs. You can say yes, doctor, doctor. Hannah's like, no. 
It would be the difference between like <laughs> be like the difference between a static tea and a fancy tea machine that like pumps it through all the different types of tea. So yeah. I, I want to just go back. What's a static tea? That sound. I mean, that's very much what I make my partner every morning. I'm just like, yeah, don't worry, I've got it. And then she'll come back 20 minutes later and it's just a <laughs> mug with a tea bag in it. No water. <laughs> no, a static tea is what you find in your room after like four days when you made it, were looking forward to it, and never drank it. And now it's got that bit of like mold at the top. It's got that skanky film on top. Oh my. I think everybody English will know how sad this thought is making us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hannah, does that mean that it would be possible in the future that the uterus could be sustained on a machine disconnected from a body? So the timescales and complexity of that is kind of far beyond technology that we have at the moment uh, and what's currently in use for organ preservation. But I think kind of the speed of development that we've seen so far and the kind of practicalities make it a really exciting idea. So could you, for example, implant an embryo in that uterus and have it develop? I mean, maybe. So one of the concerns people have around the idea of artificial wombs is the notion that you're depriving a child of a natural gestation, which is that fancy word for growth or pregnancy. So let's just put societal notions of motherhood aside for a very brief moment and focus purely on the medical aspect of this question. So Hannah, for a human fetus to develop healthily, does it always need a fully functional human body to host it? Or does it just need a functional womb? I guess to kind of partly answer that question, there's a number of cases of women who've been declared brainstem death and who've gone on to give birth. So one example is the Portuguese canoeist Caterina Sequeira, who was aged 26 and was 19 weeks pregnant when she suffered a severe asthma attack and died. So she was declared brainstem dead. A fetus of 19 weeks gestation doesn't have any possibility of surviving were they to be born at that age. And therefore, in agreement with the hospital and the husband, and in conjunction with Portuguese law, her body was kept alive using intensive care support and a ventilator. And it allowed the fetus in her womb to continue to develop for 56 more days um, before a caesarean section was performed. And the, the date of that caesarean section did actually have to be brought forwards a few days because her ventilatory capacity got worse. She was having more difficulty with oxygenating um, the fetus. So a healthy baby named Salvador was born. And after that point, the intensive care treatment was withdrawn, although Katerina had been legally dead for those 56 days. Okay, th this is absolutely crazy. So we had baby Salvador growing inside his dead mother's womb for 56 days, kept healthy by a ventilator and sort of transfusions through his poor mother's body as her body is kept not alive, but as a habitable environment, as a functional womb for him. Sally, you'll back me up here. That sounds a bit like an ethical minefield. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was trying to work out like what my response to that even is, and I don't know. Yep, fair. Yeah, um, you're exactly right. The ethical issues are really, really complex. We're balancing the requirement to act in the mother's best interest or the, the concept of beneficence and the right to life of the fetus. And the accepted mantra is that healthcare providers have a, a responsibility to the woman as their primary responsibility and a responsibility to the unborn fetus as a secondary responsibility. So, it could be viewed that this brain-dead uh, lady is having her body used as a human incubator. 
So it's really, really unusual. And I guess few women will have ever considered this possibility happening to them and so don't really have an opinion on it. But if we just leave aside the legal and practical problems, would society consider that as a, an opt-in option whereby women could consent ahead of time to have their bodies used to incubate or continue to incubate their fetuses in the unlikely event of their brainstem death? Sally, do you want to field that on behalf of womankind? No pressure? Uh, no. Um, I mean, it's incredibly <laughs> complex. And the thing that it actually made me think about is when you bring in religion, a huge number of people believe really strongly in the sanctity of the body, even after it ceases to kind of be alive in the humanistic sense. And so keeping a body artificially alive for the sake of a fetus would be a really challenging concept for them, you know, the same reason why many people don't necessarily want to opt into organ transplants, right? Then again, the same people or different people might also see the sanctity of life of that fetus and the fact that it can have a life if it's kept in those conditions, I think is an incredibly complex issue. That's really difficult because I think at the start when you were talking, I was, I, was, I was veering towards, okay, it sounds like it's an individual choice thing, but when you bring in the aspect of, say, potentially one fetus in maybe an unviable mother, that fetus could potentially be transferred to another dead body that's being kept alive. And you have the argument, well, you can't actually respect that person's personal religious outlook because we need their body for someone else's fetus, which is just another layer of complexity, but definitely muddies the notion that it could just be individual choice at play. So good luck to the legislators on that one. I feel like we should run merrily away from this legal quagmire that we found ourselves in and retreat to the happy, nebulous grey area of sci-fi, specifically to this case study. Sally, could you tell us about the bio bag? Yes, absolutely. So as Hannah briefly, there was a team in Philadelphia who basically came up with a system that as closely as possible reproduces the environment of the womb and replaces the function of the placenta. Crucially, this is very different from what we're talking about before in that this is a completely artificial uterus. Extremely premature lambs were kept alive by these artificial uteruses, uteri. Yeah, I think it's like cactus. Just follow the rule. <laughs> I like the cacti approach. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not uteri, is it, Marcus? You're trying to make me sound silly. Uh, no, no, no. It's, it's like octopus. It's uh, uterodi. <laughs> I'm just not going to say it in the plural. No. <laughs> um, extremely premature lambs have been kept alive in an artificial uterus for four weeks. And the system uses a fluid-filled plastic bag and the team used lambs that were 15 to 17 weeks into their full 21 week period and the lambs were removed by cesarean section placed into the bags connected to the uh, oxygenators and other machines and then closely monitored it's like the weirdest amazon fulfillment center in the history of online shopping where you're sort of just like opening up a sheep, taking out a little lamb, popping it in a bag. Well, I think that's what's so scary about this whole concept. And it's actually something that one of the doctors behind this said they were nervous about, is that they didn't want this to be visualised as fetuses hanging on 
the wall in bags. That's not at all what this is meant to be in the future. It will look more like an incubator with a cover and a dark interior so that the parents can come and see it and see it see their fetus through a camera and things like that. But right now, it definitely does feel slightly kind of, like you were saying, almost commercial, this idea of them just growing on the wall, almost like an Amazon factory. It's very weird. If you watch the video on YouTube, which we'll, we'll post on the Facebook page, you can see these lambs in these liquidy plastic bags just kicking around and some of them have got fur and it's very odd it's very uncanny valley we're sort of like is this is this what little bo peep had in mind what was so groundbreaking about this piece of research was that as hannah's already discussed because it was in this sealed environment the fetus was protected from all types of infections that um, might have otherwise occurred and it also hugely reduced the risk of damage to the lamb's organs and lungs which an incubator can lead to so they were achieving oxygen exchange through the umbilical cord is that right uh, and keeping the lungs sort of in a state of uh, fluidity i'm gonna say fluidity and dr dr hannah's gonna shoot me down and be like no it's pluripotency wetty aqua <laughs> No comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Great. Love it. I've got a word if you want it. Oh, yeah, I'll take the word. Go on. So the real problem with neonates who are before the stage of viability is that a lot of them develop respiratory failure and the lungs of preterm babies or in this situation lungs are kind of structurally and functionally immature. That's called bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So what they've managed to do is essentially create a bag that is like a womb. It's so like the sheep's natural womb that this little sheep fetus can carry on growing for four weeks and you can see it develop its skin and its fur more and it's moving around. It's fully alive. They've managed to recreate a womb. That's amazing. But they did have some limitations. They need to get the look and the feel of this right to make it a place where parents actually are comfortable having their children birthed in this way and the team have said that they were very conscious about getting the details just right because many treatments in the past for premature babies have previously been rushed through only to be discovered later that they were harmful and the interesting example of this that they gave was in the 1960s babies were often given too much oxygen and this basically disrupted the formation of blood vessels in some cases causing the retina to be separated from the back of the eye. And interestingly, that's actually what happened with Stevie Wonder. He was one of the thousands of children that went blind because of these incorrect procedures that happened. God, we were actually responsible for Stevie Wonder's blindness. Yeah, exactly. The team are also not completely sure if they've got the fluids that the babies will be in. They don't think they've got that quite right. They want to make sure that it's got all the nutrients and growth factors that amniotic fluid have. So how far away from human trials do you think they are? Have the team given any indication? So the team actually predicted that they were between like three and five years away from being able to achieve this. And considering this research was done a few years ago, it doesn't sound like we're that close to that yet. Another really amazing thing about the study was the outcomes that they've reported. The biggest problems with prematurity were damage to brain and damage to lungs, damage to circulation. And they were able to show that the fetal circulation was persisting in the bio bag and that there was no evidence of brain damage in any of the lambs. And they were thoroughly investigated with imaging and then dissection eventually. So Hannah, quick question. What advantages, I think we've touched on this, but what advantages would this bio bag give over current incubators? So the major difference between this birth bag or bio bag is that it's filled with fluid. 
whereas an incubator is filled with air. And because respiratory failure is, is that real problem, because the neonate doesn't have fully developed lungs, a biobag like this allows the lungs to be bypassed because the oxygenation is going through the artificial placenta. Oxygenated blood is being delivered via the umbilical vein, and therefore the lungs can continue to develop. And that is indeed what they found in this study. Could there be developmental implications to moving a fetus outside of the human? The actual moving of the lamb between the mother during a cesarean section to the bio bag was in a very controlled environment. Whereas in a hypothetical human scenario, that's probably unlikely to be the case. A premature birth is, is generally not a controlled environment. And also the importance of getting every step right, making sure that the blood supply is never interrupted, the oxygen is always delivered at a safe dose. All of these things have no room for error in a human scenario. So that's a real difference between between the lamb study and, and any application later. Well, Sally, I think this leads us on nicely from Philadelphia to Holland to the Dutch study where I think the teams had very different goals. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So a group of Dutch scientists who are aiming to create a fully external artificial womb for start to finish gestation, which, as you said, is really different to a kind of emergency situation. So they are pledging to achieve within 10 years a artificial womb for extremely premature babies. The baby is taken out of its mother and placed into the artificial room right away, connected to an artificial placenta. And then after a few weeks, when it's stronger and has, is more developed, it is then born again into real life. They predicted that in five years, they had a plan to start on real babies, because right now they're using models. This is in October last year. So we're only talking a few years down the line. But what was really interesting about this case is that they did discuss the ethical considerations quite widely. They spoke a lot about the emotional trauma that parents face when their child is born extremely prematurely. The fact that this could be a way of reducing some of that trauma and that anguish that parents go through, as well as also being potentially in the future a lifestyle choice for mothers or for same-sex partners or, you know, a plethora of people who can't naturally have a child. Absolutely. I suppose it's going to pose a, a seismic shift for a lot of the first generation mothers to go through this sort of treatment because essentially they'll be experiencing what regular fathers experience, which is to watch someone or another vessel birth your child. And this would be much like that scenario where you've transferred your fetus into this secure, nurturing womb for its best health interests. But then both of you are kind of removed from the actual birthing process. But I'm also interested in the angle where they're considering, unlike the Philadelphia team, I think the Eindhoven team are considering full start to finish gestation for this womb where it, it could ultimately remove the need for the mother's body to be uh, hosting. And then would we adjust to that in the way that we've just we take ultrasounds for granted now. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I can kind of see my kid developing periodically. Would this just be the next extrapolation of that where you can go and visit your kid? We'll get onto that in a moment. This show is made possible by the generosity of listeners like your good self. This show is entirely self-made. Help us bring the next season fresh to your ears at Maximum Warp. Just head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. It literally only takes a moment to donate and it makes such a big difference. If you believe that this show deserves a future, makeitsoon.com slash donate. Help me to bring you more amazing sci-fi content. Thanks so much. I truly appreciate it and I couldn't do it without you. Now, where were we? Presumably something deeply weird. Let's find out. 
Hannah and Sally, indeed, you'll both have hot takes on this one. But how do you think an external wound would change our definition of being a mother? I guess I would say that our definition of a mother is already due an overhaul in that it was recently ruled that the term mother should apply even in the context of a transgender man giving birth. So we have a kind of a great deal tied up in that term, which I think is already not fit for purpose. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree. I Even once a baby is born... There is, it still has to be looked after and fed and monitored and someone, you know, maybe someone needs to stay at home with it and someone needs to give it its values and its, its upbringing and its nurturing. And I think until there's a, a much wider shift of consciousness, then simply removing the baby from the mother's body is not going to change how we understand uh, traditional gender roles such as mo- mother and father. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's fair to say they didn't spend a huge amount of time on that particular topic in The Matrix. I think they just started fighting Agent Smith. This all brings us on to the next question, which is, would a human even grow in an artificial womb? So let's say the Eindhoven team are successful and they do create these insane floating Matrix-style balls filled with liquid with swimming kids in them. But would those kids actually be able to grow? Professor Magdalena Zernike-Goetz and her team at Cambridge University and also Dr. Ali Brivanlo, I'm going to say Brivanlo, his team at New York's Rockefeller University. Both of these teams in 2013 were exploring early stage fetal development. They know that when an embryo reaches 200 cells, it typically embeds in the uterus wall and our usual observation window closes. So these researchers were looking for a way around that. How could they continue to observe the embryo's development beyond that. And what they did was just put fertilized eggs in a Petri dish. Now, these embryos were donated by families who were undergoing IVF treatment who didn't need them anymore. And they put them in these Petri dishes and gave them water and nutrients. And they found that the embryos continued to develop normally for two weeks, which is a world record. And during that time, they, they observed them and learned about how, how our cells specialize. And then at the 14-day mark, they had to terminate them because that's, that's kind of the law. And apparently that's when gastrulation kicks in. Hannah, can you just tell us what gastrulation is? So it's one of the phases of embryonic development where the single-layered structure that exists before this point, which is called the bastula, and becomes a multi-layered structure, the gastrula. Uh, and each of those layers um, gives rise to specific tissues and organs in the developing embryo. So they all have a, a predestined fate. So in, in sort of layman's terms, it's when this fetus, which is just kind of like a bundle of cells, starts to figure out, hey, this bit's going to be a head and this bit's going to be a spleen. And everyone starts to take their seats for the dance to begin. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that's a bad analogy because I'm not sure how many dances you take your seat for, apart from musical chairs, which is generally when the dance has ended. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not a natural dancer. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing about this team was that they found that the embryos, even within that two-week window, they found the embryos embedded to the Petri dish and continue to develop normally. So our previous assumption had been that a fetus requires a uterus to embed in to keep developing. These guys were like, nah, you, Petri dish does it. I, I think they found they were a different shape because the dish is flat in a way that the uterine wall isn't. They found ways around this. Once the team hit this 14-day window, they're like, great, now we know that human embryos can grow outside of the womb, which is a key finding and definitely has implications for this. Uh, the team in Holland with their artificial womb. How do we find out the viability of those fetuses if we have to terminate them at 14 days? And this is kind of crazy because similar research teams, and I think some of these same teams, have started developing synthetic embryos, which they're designed to not develop fully into a viable human, 
but they are similar enough that you can study what's going on. And I think that might be the next stage that we see in the artificial womb, where these synthetic embryos are implanted and we, we see how far they get. Well, before things go hairy, I suppose. Hannah, do you think artificial wombs could be offered as an alternative form of conception? Well, I think we've made kind of two really major steps towards that goal, which is in vitro fertilization, and also the fact that, that we can show that lambs can develop from the almost inviable stage up to a definitively viable mature stage. So embryonic development is complex and kind of the fully synthetic version is a long way away, but I think these are kind of two really major and important steps. So an exciting kind of point to see what happens. Yeah, all right. That's a, that sounds pretty optimistic. One key question that's rattling around my head, right, is let's say 50 years from now that the Eindhoven team's matrix-like artificial womb has become mainstream and it's pretty acceptable to grow your fetus, normally raise a child in one of these tubs. Where do you keep this artificial womb? Uh, Sally, what would make you feel better? Would you feel more comfortable keeping your kid in an artificial womb at home in your house? Or would you prefer them to be in a specialized lab with heaps of other kids? Kind of like a battery farm. It's really tricky. I don't know because I'm a very clumsy person, <laughs> um, as I'm sure all the people around me would tell you. And I would definitely be worried about carrying around my little fetus, um, which actually I'm sure a lot of pregnant people have that fear anyway, and that's sort of safely inside their bodies. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of similar. Women are increasingly being encouraged to freeze their eggs. And these eggs are kept in these kind of warehouses. And there are risks of things like a power cut to the whole warehouse. And then all of these women who have either got undergone chemotherapy or hormone changes or whatever it is, and this is where their one chance of having a biological child rests in this warehouse, and they're just wiped out. So whilst I think I'd probably say, well, let's keep it with the scientists and doctors and don't give it to me to carry around, there are also, of course, huge risks to any industrial medical lab. That is definitely true. And hospitals will typically have their own generators because if you can imagine an intensive care ward, for example, or a neonatal intensive care ward losing power, these people are on multiple devices to keep them alive. So there are ways that you can kind of try and back up these things. I think there's definitely a case to be made for I think, sort of the psychological implications on parents who would essentially be taking delivery of a child rather mm. than nurturing one. I wonder if you can envisage a world in which, because it's, it's presumable that this technology, like many technologies, would exist in parallel with people who choose not to adopt it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you stick to have a natural birth or whatever, or maybe you simply can't afford it or it's not legal in your country. But I, I like to imagine a hybrid society where some people choose to have this and some people don't. But the people who do choose to have it have to carry around their fetus kind of like an egg in a little keepsafe fox. And then that sort of forces you to mature, I think, as a parent in advance of your eggling hatching, but then also allows the opportunity for exactly what Sally was talking about earlier, which is uh, shared parental leave to take on meaning from the outset where both parents are expected to be responsible for the fetus in a way that at the moment, obviously, <laughs> there are practical limitations to that. I mean, I guess there are kind of all kinds of types of couples where that equality already exists, like a homosexual male couple giving birth via a surrogate or a homosexual female couple sometimes will have a baby where one member of the couple will carry the baby and one member of the couple will be the biological parent of the child. So I guess there are already lots of scenarios where the, the equality is inbuilt. Hannah, could you just give us a closing overview 
as to whether you think there are further potential benefits. Yeah, so I think we've talked about the kind of main proposed benefit, which would be to reduce the complications of prematurity for a fetus who would otherwise be born on the cusp of viability. But there's actually loads of other kind of interesting potential applications, such as currently, and this is pretty amazing, some surgeries can be performed on the fetus whilst it's still in utero for some some rare situations. But you could hypothetically perform surgery on the fetus or baby while it was in a biobag type equivalent with greater potentially safer access to him or her and also with the ability to blood transfusions on that fetus or baby if they needed it. You might also be able to deliver drugs to the baby or fetus without needing them to also be safe for the mother and without the problem of needing to traverse the placental barrier which currently prevents some things of certain sizes from crossing over between mother's and baby's bloodstream. In theory, you could also deliver some gene therapies or some stem cell therapies. All of these would also bypass any risk to the mother. I think another really attractive application um, of this kind of technology would be to provide another option for mothers who develop life-threatening complications of pregnancy. So there are some really sad stories of women who develop cancers while, while they're pregnant or discover they have cancers while they're pregnant and thus are given the kind of terrible choice between ending their pregnancy at a time when their fetus isn't viable and so won't survive or delaying their cancer treatment, which would reduce the chance that they'll be alive in five or ten years' time. Some women also get life-threatening complications that require the baby to to be delivered that day or within a few hours, otherwise they can die. An example would be preeclampsia. So hypothetically, the biobank could offer an option for these women to be able to have their pregnancy or have their fetus continued and allow that baby to survive. As we've talked about earlier, I think the last kind of also really exciting option is that for those that don't have the ability to carry their own fetus, like, for example, women with the same syndrome as Lolita, who we discussed earlier, or those in whom it would be really psychologically damaging to carry the pregnancy, but whom uh, it would benefit to have a child of their own without a surrogate, then I think this is a kind of really exciting possibility. Right, guys, I think I think we're there. I think we're safe, home and dry, or rather we're all stuffed in bags filled with amniotic fluid, which is better for our lungs. <laughs> uh, massive thank you to both for coming on the show. It's been brilliant having you here. Do keep your eyes peeled on the scientific journals for Dr. Dr. Hannah Coakley's latest research. And if you enjoyed Sally Patterson's insights and banter as much as I have, you should check out her podcast, Take It From Her, where she speaks to great women making waves in their fields. It's available everywhere. So no reason not to listen. Hey, a quick final word from our guests, Hannah and Sally. Let's say 50 years from now, artificial womb technology is perfect safe and commonplace and we're all growing an extra kid at home. Would you guys consider it? I don't see why not. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely will because I don't know how much the idea of pregnancy appeals to me except for the fact that I can eat as much as I want and boss everyone around. And I don't know if you still have that excuse if you're not actually growing your baby, but maybe you do. <laughs> no, fair enough. I, but I love the rationale behind it. Maybe it will give me the much needed excuse to eat as much I like and boss people around if I am carrying around this little egg all, all day long. All right, Sally, quick final outro question. Can you remember what gastrulation means? Okay. If my memory serves me, gastrulation is the phase of embryonic development where a single-layered structure becomes a multi-layered structure. This is sounding so organic. I love it. Keep going. (laughs) 
I, I don't know. I don't understand these words enough to make them my own. No, I'll be honest, mate. It doesn't sound like you're you're trying to remember. It sounds like you're learning to read. <laughs> <laughs> that is honestly that is what the last. Do you better not question me on feminist theory because like <laughs> that's what the last two hours have felt like a little bit. I feel like I haven't learned anything in my life until now, and suddenly it's like you know that that scary dream where like you're pushed on stage and like you're meant to do a play but you oh, haven't yeah, ever learned the yeah. play and you don't know what your lines are that is me in this podcast <laughs> i did a birthday zoom the other day and we played just a minute in it oh my god what a stressful game i had a horrible time oh it's stressful I, yeah really yeah. stressful yeah i didn't have a horrible time we both <laughs> like to talk a lot but not what <laughs> yeah. i'll tell yeah. your friend um yeah. you know, but, but honestly this has been really really great um i've learned so much it's been an honour to hear from you, Hannah, Dr. Dr. Hannah, as you will forever be to me. <laughs> no, thanks so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed all these discussions, particularly unpicking the kind of complications of all of these issues and what it means for, for womankind and peoplekind. Oh, what a lovely, lovely note to end on. Thank you guys so much. You've been absolutely fantastic. Uh, really appreciate your amazing insights. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you to you guys for listening at home. If you've enjoyed this week's show, be sure to subscribe to the Make It Soon podcast and please leave us a review on whatever platform you're using. And don't forget there's a bonus episode where we've got interviews with some of the people and institutions we talk about in the main shows. So it's definitely worth checking out. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Boom, budgie, boom, budgie, boom, budgie, jingle. And that's it. Guys, thank you so much. No, thank you. Hooray. Been so good. No, thank you so much for coming on.